1 Samuel 28. We live in a material world, a three-dimensional landscape within which we interact and with which we interact. But while the material world around us dominates our senses, when we think of our five senses, the material world dominates it. There is an unseen world all around us that dominates thought, action, and the direction of culture. We speak this morning uh, and for the next several weeks in regard to this unseen world. I have the title of the sermon as Death in the Spirit Realm, Part 1. We're going to spend three sermons on this concept. And as we do so, um, this week we're just going to exposit the passage in 1 Samuel 28. So we're not going to get in depth into the the dynamics of the spirit realm. Next week we're going to, to dig into the afterlife and what the Bible teaches about it to clarify some things. It will be a highly informative message Um, that, uh, Lord willing, will will give you some idea of what the Bible teaches in that regard. And then the week after will be the week that we truly focus in on some of the dynamics of of the spirit realm, of um, angels, demons, that sort of thing. It was was, uh, a little more than a year ago that I preached my last message on this topic, and so it will be good that we revisit it again. These messages are somewhat intimidating to preach, not so much this week, but but particularly the one in in two weeks. um, As the general ambiguity in the scriptures in relation to the topic um, brings us to a place where we have to infer many things. Uh, We can't just open our Bible in every respect and come interpretively uh, to consistent sweeping conclusions about everything regarding the spirit realm. And yet we will do our best as we look at the examples of scripture to come to biblical consistent conclusions. We do ourselves a great service, however, if we endeavor to ignore the existence of the spirit realm in our lives and not just the existence of, of course, God and his Holy Spirit and his son, Jesus Christ, but in relation to the demonic realm and how the demonic realm is active in the world today. And so we begin this three-week consideration of the spirit realm with one of the most clear demonstrations of interaction between the material and spiritual realms that we have in the Bible, and particularly as it relates to those that would communicate to the demonic realm. And as we consider this, I'm going to speed up a little bit, a lot of information to cover this morning, and I'm already starting a little bit late. So hang on and stay with me. And we'll seek to get through it all this morning. Our text opens by way of transition with David's situation that yet exists in the land of the Philistines. In 1 Samuel 28, look at verse 1. The Bible says, And it came to pass in those days that the Philistines gathered their army together for warfare to fight with Israel. And Achish said unto David, Know thou assuredly that thou shalt go out with me to battle thou and thy men. Remember we left David two weeks ago in a pretty bad spot in chapter 27. He's living in the land of the Philistines and he's doing so with his band of 600 men, those men that have followed him and their families. He has his own city, a city called Ziklag, uh, but it lives under the rule of Achish, who is king of, of um, Gath, which is in the land of the Philistines. He's been lying to the king, saying that he's been going out destroying Jewish settlements, when in fact he has been going out destroying the settlements of the Canaanites in the land. And because he has been lying to the king... Uh, 
Achish is now convinced that David has destroyed any goodwill that he had in Israel, and he believes that he literally owns David now, as David has no Israel to go back to. And it is in verse 1 of chapter 28 that we see Achish, I guess we could say, trotting out his new toy and seeing what he can do with David, who is now under his control. So Achish tells David that he will go out with them as they fight the nation of Israel. Now, within the context of what David has untruthfully told to the king, this request should not warrant a second thought. There should be no problem with David grabbing his 600 men and fighting against Israel, because as far as David has untruthfully told the king, he's been doing this for for months anyway. He's been going to settlements in, in the in Israel, and he's been destroying them. And indeed, we find David, if for no other reason than to keep up this pretense, this lie that he's uh, established himself in, we we find him in a position where he agrees with Achish in this. Notice what he says in verse 2. And David said unto Achish, Surely thou shalt know what thy servant can do. And Achish said unto David, Therefore will I make thee keeper of mine head forever. So David's answer is somewhat ambiguous, but also a little bit straight uh, straightforward. He, he says, You will get to see now what your servant can do. Achish, you will see me in battle. And, and as we consider this... Uh, He's not telling Achish, yep, I'm with you on this. Yep, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fight Israel. He's being ambiguous, but he's, he's definitely keeping up pretenses here. And Achish says, here's the thing, David, if you do this, if you fight well for me in this battle, he says, you'll be keeper of mine head forever. You're going to become captain of my guard. You are going to become the head of my military men. You're going to become my bodyguard. You're going to have a position of authority in my kingdom for as long as you want it. Now, at this point, we can only imagine what's going through David's head. He's in a really tough spot here. He's been promised the kingdom of Israel. God has already promised that. He has told, uh, Samuel has told Saul that. The nation knows it. David knows it. And yet here he's in a position where he is supposed to come and fight against Israel in a battle. And he's here because of the lies that he's told. But to the, uh, th- that's the extent of what we're going to consider with David this morning. We'll pick up again with him in, in 1 Samuel 29 and, and we'll learn a little bit more about the dangers of lying and the nature of truth. But in verse 3, we transition. We are reminded in what will become a very important point that Samuel is dead. Verse 3 says, Now Samuel was dead and all Israel had lamented him and buried him in Ramah even in his own city. And Saul had put away those that had familiar spirits and wizards out of the land. Well, we know this already as it was recorded in 1 Samuel 25, verse 1. And it has probably been well over a year since Samuel had died. Samuel died. He was buried in Ramah. We remember that. That was even before we learned about Nabal and before um, all of those things that took place. So it's probably more like a year or two years since Samuel had died. And the reason it's brought up again in this verse, you say, Pastor, why would, why would the scriptures bring it up again? Why would the Holy Spirit inspire this again? And the reason why is because we're going to see here Saul is going to be in a tough spot. And we can see that he needs spiritual counsel. And we understand this not simply by the fact that it says Samuel was dead, but by bringing up the reality that Saul had put away from the land those that had familiar spirits, and the wizards. Samuel was the prophet of God. He was the God-ordained method of communicating the word and the will of God to the king. Samuel had not spoken to the king, if you recall, since the day that Saul had chosen to disobey the Lord in sparing Agag, the king of the Amalekites, in 1 Samuel 15. 
Since 1 Samuel 15, Saul and Samuel have not interacted. But in this particular battle, Saul felt a deep need for divine guidance and Samuel is dead. Not only this, but those who had familiar spirits and those wizards had been cast out of the land by Saul. Now, this um, was a method of receiving spirit guidance through those connected with the spirit realm unnaturally. They were connected with the spirit realm by means of demons. To a person with a familiar spirit uh, was someone that has a, a demonic spirit that they are in communication with. A wizard, uh, typically as we see the designation in scripture, a witch would be a woman with a familiar spirit. A wizard would be a man with a familiar spirit. And Saul had, in, a mo- in, in one of those brief moments of obedience unto the Lord, cast all of these spiritual mediums, all of those who could interact with the spirit realm outside of God's design, his prescribed medium, he cast them all out of the land. Now, the King James Version uses this term familiar spirits as a translation of a Hebrew word that literally means to mumble or to bottle by implication to, to make a hollow sound. Uh, the, the word is also used to talk about uh, a, a ventriloquist, one whose mouth is moving, but someone else is putting the words into his mouth, right? That's the idea of a ventriloquist. And this is the concept of a familiar spirit. Someone with whom a, a demonic spirit would come upon them and would speak through them or who would deliver a message that the demonic, that the demon desires for him to deliver. And this is, this is that concept um, that, that we are dealing with. A wizard uh, was a similar idea, but carries more of the connotation of one who consulted with the spirit realm uh, for prophetic utterances, for general knowledge. Uh, some people, uh, maybe that would have, um, they would be seen as prophets or soothsayers or, or um, oracles would typically be in the wizard realm, those that are communicating with um, the spirit realm. And in all of these cases, the communication is outside of God's prescribed methods. And so we know that it would not be within God's blessing. It's not a communication with God and and the spirits of light. It's communication with Satan and the spirits of darkness. Now, God is not ambiguous in the scriptures regarding how he views those that consult with demonic beings. In Leviticus chapter 19, verse 31, he tells the nation of Israel, regard not them that have familiar spirits, neither seek after wizards to be defiled by them. I am the Lord your God. He says, I am God. I am in command here. Don't go after anyone that is dealing with familiar spirits, that is dealing in the demonic realm, that is dealing in the spiritual realm outside of my prescribed methods. He would heighten this command in Leviticus 20, verse 6. And the soul that turneth after such as have familiar spirits and after wizards to go a-whoring after them, I will even set my face against that soul and will cut him off from among his people. So insistent was God that the people of Israel not follow after demonic influences that he said anyone in Israel who would seek after them would be cut off from the people. And notice how he describes this pursuit of spiritual demonic communication. He says it's to go a-whoring after them. God regards interaction with the demonic realm as spiritual prostitution as unfaithfulness to the truth of God and following after the lie of Satan. 
Now, just 20 verses later in Leviticus 20, 27, God would get even more severe. He says this, a man also or a woman that hath a familiar spirit or that is a wizard shall surely be put to death. They shall stone them with stones. Their blood shall be upon them. So God first says don't to Israel, don't consult with anyone in the demonic realm. Then he says, if you do, you will be cut off from Israel. And then he says, if you do, you will be stoned with or excuse me, and then he says, those that do have these familiar spirits, they need to be killed. So the person that consults them would be cut off. The person that has them or, or is involved with the demonic realm should be killed. Now, of course, this is God's prescription under the Mosaic law for Israel, but this is to give you an idea of just how serious this was to God. Just how much He wanted these people removed. So much so that literally, if you had a familiar spirit, there was a death sentence put upon you. So we see, as we consider this, the text tells us that Saul had put away those that had familiar spirits. We'll find a few verses later, however, that uh, as we, f- we interact with this witch, this woman that has a familiar spirit, we will learn that she feels that her life is threatened. If, if Saul were to find out where she was, her life would be threatened. So we understand here that Saul didn't just cast them out of the land. Literally, he put a death sentence on the head of anyone that had a, a demonic um, interaction or familiar spirits. And because of this, they were put out from the land. They fled, right? They went into hiding. They were not to be found. So Saul did a pretty good job there. He did what he was supposed to do. He obeyed the word of the Lord. Continuing in the text in verses 4 and 5, we read this. The Philistines gathered themselves together and came and pitched in Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel together and they pitched in Gilboa. And when Saul saw the host of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart greatly trembled. So we have these two armies. They're pitched and they're pitched around the valley of Jezreel, which also is the valley of Megiddo, uh, going to be the place where Armageddon takes place in the future. And in this valley is a very vast valley. And we see the Philistines by the city of Shunem and the Israelites by Mount Gilboa. And when Saul saw exactly how large the Philistine army was, he became extremely terrified. The, the, the scriptures tell us his heart greatly trembled. He had no capacity, even though he was a good warrior, no capacity that he could overcome this kind of a force. And immediately he is concerned. So the scriptures tell us um, that Saul sought to call upon the Lord for guidance, for help, and for blessing. Verse 6 says, And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord answered him not, neither by dreams, nor by Urim, nor by the prophets. And this should not surprise him or any of us, right? God has already told Saul, you have been cast out of the kingdom. You have been rejected as king. Samuel said, I will speak to you no longer. Saul has no connection to the Lord any longer. He has already been rejected by God. And it's an unfortunate but perhaps familiar reality that Saul didn't call upon the Lord until a situation where he, he felt the need too great for him. Uh, so often we are tempted to do the same, are we not? We're tempted to um, do it our own way until such time as we get in over our heads. And that's when we decide to flee to the Lord. The idea, uh, you know, there are no atheists in foxholes, right? 
So a, a, a guy can say he doesn't believe in the Lord until such time as he finally realizes he's in over his head and now it's time to call upon the Lord. And that idea is the idea we're seeing here. Saul didn't, didn't care about the Lord when, when he was chasing David, trying to kill him in, in disobedience to God. Saul didn't care about the Lord in any of those circumstances, but now he knows he's in over his head. There's no avoiding this battle. And he finally realizes again, hey, I need God. Uh, to, to consult with God when we are in over our heads, but to ignore Him when we're convinced that the situation is well in hand is at best spiritually inconsistent. It's a perpetual problem of human nature that can only be, that can only be overcome in our lives by daily recognizing the supremacy of the Lord and our need for Him, not just in the tough times, but at all times. That God is all in all. And as we understand our need for Him uh, in every circumstance, it cures us of this human propensity to call upon him only when we feel we're over our heads. So Saul seeks the Lord, and the Lord would not give it. Not by a dream, the scriptures tell us, not by the Urim. The Urim and the Thummim were something that was prescribed by God. Nobody really knows how it worked, but it was a means by which to divine God's will, used by the priests. So dreams weren't working, the Urim wasn't working, and no prophets. The prophets, there was no prophet that came to him. There was no prophet... To that, that had a word of the Lord. No way. Saul was going in spiritually blind. We don't know if Saul had any communication from the Lord since the day that Samuel announced his rejection of the throne. Likely, however, this was the first time since that rejection that Saul even tried to communicate with God. And this puts Saul in a very difficult spot. He's a warrior, yet every battle against the Philistines he's ever had has been divinely blessed. Jonathan, if you recall, was divinely blessed of the Lord to deliver the, Phili- the Israel from the Philistines the first time. Then David, when Goliath came against him. In every circumstance, through David's faith, through David's leadership, through Jonathan's faith, God has divinely blessed these battles to give the underdog a victory. And now Saul knows that he doesn't have that. But he still needs to fight this army. So Saul, in desperation, says this in verse 7, Seek me a woman that hath a familiar spirit, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servant said unto him, Behold, there is a woman that hath a familiar spirit at Endor. It's interesting to note that Saul does not say a person with a familiar spirit, but a woman with a familiar spirit. History and experience bear out that in any context, women tend to be more in tune with the spiritual world. It's one of those interesting things that, that you find as you look at, at history. Uh, I don't know, as you consider the, the proverbial gypsy or the proverbial um, hand reader or, or, or the proverbial fortune teller, you're considering a woman, right? That's looking into a crystal ball, that's reading cards, that's reading palms, whatever it might be. And this is, is a stereotype that is built upon the reality that women tend to have uh, um, this connection to the spiritual. And, and so he says, seek me out a woman. Uh, and have uh, a woman that has a familiar spirit. Even in a positive context, the difference between men and women in regard to an appreciation and an understanding of spiritual things can oftentimes be obvious. If you've noticed in society and culture, when you start to see um, people falling away from the Lord, it's the men that go first and the women typically follow after. But the women oftentimes tend to cling to that spirituality uh, longer. And um, women tend to uh, have the spiritual sensibilities a bit sooner as far as young people than young men do. And, and these are just uh, experience and history points, not doctrinal points, but it is kind of interesting.
as with many things in the spirit realm, we can't exactly uh, quantify the claim that women are more in tune with the spirit realm by, by fact or by statistic, but it seems to bear out that way as we look at history and as we look at culture. So Saul commands them to find a woman with a familiar spirit. And presumably, after this inquiry, Saul's servants told him that there was a woman with a familiar spirit in Endor. Ironically, as we think of, if we were to look at a map, you'd have Israel here, the Philistines here, Endor down here. So Saul will have to go around the army of the Philistines to get to this woman, and indeed he does. Verse 8 tells us, Saul disguised himself, put on other raiment, and he went, and two men with him, and they came to the woman by night, and he said, I pray thee, divine unto me by the familiar spirit, and bring me for, uh, him up, whom I shall name unto thee. Saul disguises himself so that the witch would not know he's the king. After all, the king has made an edict that all witches are to die, all wizards are to die, so he wouldn't want to reveal his hand because if he did so, she would not tell him anything. And he disguises himself, he takes two men, and he goes to talk to this woman. And this would not necessarily have been a strange request for this witch. Um, perhaps you've heard those. There, there are people on the radio that do this, and you can call in, and they can communicate with dead relatives and these sorts of things. And, and or they say they can at least. And, and some of them have a legitimate capacity. They have a familiar spirit, and they are indeed communicating with the spirit realm. Um, we'll talk in the weeks to come about whether or not they're actually communicating with family. Uh, short answer, no. But um, they have a demonic. Uh, they, they have demonic communication. There are many people in many industries that admit to demonic communication. So this familiar spirit thing, this is a normal thing. We we see this today yet and uh, prevalently even in our culture. If you look in the right places, so um, this request would be this. You, woman, I need you to communicate with your demonic counterpart, and your demonic counterpart is going to supposedly communicate with, with some dead person that I want you to communicate with, and that dead person is then going to communicate to the demon who's going to communicate to you, who's going to communicate to me. And this request would typically be, as we even see it today, to, to speak with a dead family member or some famous person, Right? Dead family member or some famous person. So when, when he makes this request, I need you to bring someone up for me, she wouldn't have been shocked. Even when he says, I need you to bring up Samuel, she may not have been shocked because, after all, he's a famous person. The woman, however, is naturally skeptical, and she says this in verse 9, Behold, thou knowest what Saul hath done, how that he hath cut off those that hath familiar spirits and the wizards out of the land. Wherefore, then layest thou a snare for my life? See, she's afraid for her life to cause me to die. This is a forbidden art, she says. Why would you want me to practice it? What if I get caught? Saul says this to her in verse 10. He swear unto her by the Lord, saying, As the Lord liveth, there shall no punishment happen to thee for this thing. Interestingly, Saul invokes the reality of the living God, the one whose word is being disobeyed by consulting with a familiar spirit, the one who commanded this woman to be put to death for her, for her wickedness, the one who is being dishonored and opposed by their actions, Saul swears that as surely as that Lord lives, there will no punishment come to her. Very spiritually contradictory statement there. Consider carefully what we're reading here. We're reading about the end of a very long line of unrepentant sin. We're reading about the end of a very long chain of disregard for the word of God. 
We're, we're watching a man establish his own destruction. We are watching as a man so deeply abandons God and his word, and he's so lost in the darkness of his own selfish motives and ambitions that he is hurling himself towards spiritual destruction. Consider this with gravity and with fear. For it is not beyond reason that we could possibly lose our own way and end up in such a place also. So the woman says in verse 11, Whom shall I bring up unto thee? And he said, Bring me up Samuel. Samuel was a famous man in Israel. Implicitly, the woman consults with her familiar spirit to channel Samuel. Notice verse 12, though. It says, And when the woman saw Samuel, she cried with a loud voice. And the woman spake to Saul, saying, what hast thou, Why hast thou deceived me? For thou art Saul. This woman sees Samuel, which tells us that very likely she was looking through something, maybe the proverbial crystal ball. We're not exactly sure what she used as a medium. Uh, it may have been the actual ball. It may have been water. It may have been a looking glass. Um, this particular witch was apparently using some object and that object was the medium through which her familiar spirit communicated with her. We see those in today's world, right? That's what the Ouija board is. It's an object through which a familiar spirit communicates. That's, that's communicating with the demonic realm. That's what it is. And so that Ouija board, in, in the same way that a person would look at the Ouija board and try to discern something by, you know, it's spelling something out. She is looking through something. She is looking at something. And that something is showing her something that, that is intended to communicate through the demonic realm. All right? So that's what, what's happening here. But she didn't actually expect to see Samuel. This really startles her. And the next verse will make it clear that she, she doesn't necessarily know it's Samuel. She knows it's a man, but the Bible tells us it is, in fact, Samuel. And rather than the typical communication with her demon, with her familiar spirit, Samuel himself began communicating. And this was absolutely outside of the norm. This is something she did not expect, and she was terrified when she saw it. And when she saw that, she immediately knew, some way, shape, or form, that the man sitting across from her was, in fact, Saul. Whether Samuel had told her this, or whether the demon had mentioned it, or whether um, it was just based upon the fact that Samuel, his presence was actually there, we don't know. But she knows that that Saul is the one that's sitting before her. And she's very fearful. Look at verse 13. The king said unto her, Be not afraid, for what sawest thou? And the woman said unto Saul, I saw gods ascending out of the earth. Now she's not saying she saw the living God ascending out of the earth. The idea of gods would have been some, some being connected to God. We, we see the same idea in the book of Daniel. We see it several times in the word of God where as they try to describe an angelic um, occurrence or, or some spirit occurrence that they can't fully wrap their mind around. They say, I saw gods, uh, something happening with the gods. And she says, I saw gods ascending out of the earth. And we'll talk about that more next week, the idea of the gods ascending out of the earth. But first notice verse 14. And he said unto her, what form is he of? Saul says, what, what form is this, this thing that arose out of the earth? And she said, an old man cometh up. And he's covered with a mantle. And Saul perceived that it was Samuel. And he stooped with his face to the ground and bowed himself. So the woman sees an old man coming up out of the earth. He's covered in a mantle. And, Sam, and Saul knows this is Samuel. And he immediately displays humility and reverence. He bows himself to the ground. And the text tells us 
that what this witch perceived was ascending out of the earth. Again, we'll talk about that next week. One of several instances, however, where we see uh, the, the visual manifestation of, a, of something ascending out of the earth, and we'll talk about why that is next week. So Samuel then speaks to Saul. We have a conversation now between Saul and Samuel. And Samuel, which is the spirit, he's dead, is speaking to Saul. And he says this in verse 15. Why hast thou disquieted me to bring me up? And Saul answered, I am sore distressed, for the Philistines make war against me, and God is departed from me, and answereth me no more, neither by prophets nor by dreams. Therefore I have called thee, that thou, should, that thou mayest make known unto me what I shall do. Now, this really reveals how spiritually out of touch Saul is here. He's saying, he's speaking to the spirit of Samuel, right? And he says this, effectively, Samuel, God is no longer speaking to me through prophets or dreams, so I have called you from the dead, outside of God's will, through a demonic medium, in order that you can tell me God's will. There's just something really messed up with how he's thinking here. It's, it's, it's completely backward, and that's what sin does. Somehow, Saul thought that by bypassing God's methods of communicating with him and rather using Satan's methods of communicating with man, he could somehow find God's blessing or God's wisdom on this subject. He seems to have forgotten that Samuel was a prophet of God, which means God would not have spoken to him through Samuel even if Samuel had still been alive, much less after he's dead. And we'll talk more about that in our application. So Samuel says in verses 16 and 17, he says, he says as much. He says, Wherefore then dost thou ask of me? Why are you asking me? Seeing the Lord is departed from thee and has become thy enemy. And the Lord hath done to him as he spake by me. For the Lord hath rent the kingdom out of thine hand and given it to thy neighbor, even to David. Samuel says, remember, why are you asking me, Saul? Remember me? That, that, that guy Samuel, that guy that came to you and said, you are no longer... King in Israel, God has rejected you. Remember the guy that rent his garment and said, God has rent the kingdom from you. Remember the guy that said, I will see your face no more. That's me. Remember me. Why in the world would you come to me now seeking for that which I've already told you you can't have? And in doing so, not only has he shown a blatant disregard for God again, but he's heightened his own curse, hasn't he? Because not only now is he lost for the battle, but he has just done what Leviticus 20 said they may not do, which is to consult a familiar spirit. Uh, to consult a medium. And so now he's heightened his own curse through disobedience once again. And that's what we read in verse 19. Moreover, Samuel says, the Lord will also deliver Israel with thee into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow shalt thou and thy sons be with me. The Lord also shall deliver the host of Israel into the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel says, here's the thing, Saul. You've disobeyed. God has already rejected you. You've, you need to lie in the bed you've made. And not only that, not only will Israel lose this battle, but you and your sons are going to join me tomorrow. He's dead, right? You're going to join me in death. You'll be dead with me tomorrow. Now, this declaration has the expected effect on Saul. Verse 20 says, Saul fell straightway all along the earth and was sore afraid because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten no bread all day nor that night. He hadn't eaten in something like 24 hours. And now Samuel, the, the, the disembodied spirit of Samuel, appears to him and tells him, not only will the Lord not help you, not only are you going to lose the battle tomorrow, but you're going to die tomorrow. 
and the soldiers has no strength left in him. Now the witch who had called Samuel up, who had played that role, has pity on Saul here. And she says, Behold, thine handmaid hath obeyed thy voice, and I have put my life in thy hand, and have hearkened unto the words which thou spakest unto me. Now therefore I pray thee, hearken thou also to the voice of thine handmaid. And let me set a morsel of bread before thee, and eat, that thou mayest have strength. And when thou goest on thy way, excuse me, when thou goest on thy way, but he refused, and said, I will not eat, but his servants together with the woman compelled him. And he hearkened unto their voice, and he arose from the earth and sat upon the bed. And the woman had a fat calf in the house, and she hasted and killed it and took flour and kneaded it and did bake unleavened bread thereof. And she brought it before Saul and before his servants, and they did eat. Then they arose up and went away that night. So the witch has compassion on Saul, and eventually they compel the king to eat something, and he leaves that evening. Of course, they'd need to leave in the evening for two reasons. First of all, he just consulted a familiar spirit, and that's not a good thing. Second, because they needed to, again, sneak around the Philistine army, right, to get back to his army before the day. So they leave at night, and that draws us to the end of this chapter and leads us into the final few chapters of 1 Samuel and the final days of the life of Saul and his sons. Now, as I mentioned before, I consider this message part one of three. There's so much information. We always need to start by expositing the passage because the Word of God is the foundation upon which we build. Over the next two weeks, I'm going to park in 1 Samuel 28. Next week, we'll talk about the dynamics of the afterlife and what the Bible says about what happens to people when they die and the different words that the Bible uses to describe it. The week after that, we are going to park on the spirit realm and talk about demons, and talk about angels, and talk about their influence, and talk about um, where, how we as believers relate unto the spirit realm, the angels and demons. And we'll talk about that, not next week, but the week after. For today, however, I'd like us to consider a few practical applications of the narrative itself. I always try to give you some practical application to go with. And application number one of three God will only be found His way. God will only be found His way. All three applications this morning flow from the extension of Saul's attempt to ascertain God's will through Samuel's spirit by means of a woman who communicates with demons. Saul couldn't get to God through God's prescribed means, so he sought to get to God through a spiritual loophole. He sought to ascertain God's will in the battle by calling the spirit of Samuel from the dead. And while he was successful at God's permission, of course, of calling up Samuel from the dead, it goes without saying that he was not successful in getting what he sought, God's will, God's blessing, or God's guidance in the battle that was to come. Our society is falling increasingly into the deceptions of the demonic realm. As our society rejects the truth of God's word, the demonic realm has become more and more obvious, outspoken, and bold. You could always go to different places, places like Haiti and places like uh, where, where there are, are deep pagan roots and find the demonic realm very bold and very active. had a friend from Nigeria who uh, would describe to me the dynamics of the demonic realm there, very, very active. But in the Western world, because of the nature of biblical truth that had integrated itself so deeply into society, the demonic realm had for years been kind of under the radar a little bit. Still obviously there, but under the radar. Well, that's, that's not really happening anymore. 
And in the dynamics of, of what is now called New Age spirituality, we find the occult is very, very strong. One of the capstones of this spiritual shift in the Western world is that people are now consumed with seeking out different and unique ways to communicate with God, aren't they? You have all sorts of different and new ways of seeking to find God. And none of these are actually new. They are, they've always been around, but they're becoming prevalent in our culture. They're recycling, as Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun, right? Everything just kind of recycles. And these new errors are not new. They're just recycled errors of days gone by. Spiritual exercises that are finding their way into Western civilization that have been prevalent in the East for years, things like meditation and contemplative prayer and hypnosis and uh, things by means of music, these are all being used as an attempt to open minds and spirits to the divine but outside of the prescribed methods that God has given us in His Word. This is no different than what Samuel has, is, uh, Saul did here in this passage. He sought to access the divine by means of methods that were outside of God's prescription. And what he found was not divine communication, he found demonic communication. And then God overrode that and brought Samuel up from the grave. Those that do this, while often they do find something very spiritual, will also find that the spirit is not the spirit of truth, it's the spirit of error. We're going to talk about this more extensively in two weeks. But on the authority of God's word, God will be found one way, the way he has prescribed. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the world. God used to communicate through the prophets, but the scriptures clearly tell us that in this last age, God has spoken unto us through Jesus Christ, through his Son. And as we consider this reality, we understand that the Son, Jesus Christ, communicates to us in two very definitive ways. The first way is the scriptures. The apostles and prophets are God's chosen medium through which he expresses his divine will. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 19 and 20 tells us that God has built the church upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone. This is the apostles and prophets. This is their writings. This is what God has prescribed as his communication to man. 1 Timothy 3, 15 and 16 tells us that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine and for reproof and for correction and for instruction in righteousness. That the scriptures that God has inspired for us are what he has given to us in order to live this life properly. 2 Peter 1, verse 3 tells us that God has given us all things pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him that called us into glory and virtue, through Christ. And so we have the Word of God, but beyond the Word of God, and we do a great disservice if we, if we leave this out, if we leave Him out, beyond the Word of God, we have the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ. The Spirit of God in the Scripture, it's not ambiguous as to who He is, as to how He works, and without Him, we can do nothing. Without Him, we have nothing. In Galatians chapter 5, we find clear guidelines as to what are the fruits of the Spirit of God. And that is the method through which He acts out of us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, in 1 John 2, 27, 
we find that it is only through the Spirit of God that we have any capacity to understand the Word of God and any spiritual ability to obey the Word of God. That outside of the Spirit of God, this book will make no sense. This book will not properly, cannot properly be understood. That spiritual things cannot be understood apart from the Spirit of God. The ministry of the Spirit of God in our lives is to lead us into the knowledge of God, to guide us into the Word of God, and the Scriptures tell us that that's the means by which we live out our life. And then as we pray and we have that daily communication with God through His Spirit, the Spirit of God leads us into God's will. So the Scriptures, the Word of God, and the Spirit of God, this is how God is found. God has found His way. When we go outside of His way, we put ourselves on extremely dangerous ground just as Saul did. Point number two. The absence of God's way brings darkness. The absence of God's way brings darkness. Psalm 119, 105 says this, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Psalm 119, 130, The entrance of thy word giveth light. It giveth understanding to the simple. And of course, how do we understand the Word of God? We understand the Word of God through the Spirit of God. The degree of light, of wisdom which you have to take the steps that you need to take in life in order to please God, in order to align yourself with His will, is directly related to the degree that you conform your heart and your mind to the Word of God. As you submit to the Word of God, your way is thus illuminated. If we use the example here, the lamp, the Word of God is the lamp. So as we're walking through this world, God is illuminating the path before us so that every step we take is the step that we take according to the will of God. And we'll come to points where there will be a, a, a split in the road and it will be very clear which way we should take, illuminated by the, the Spirit of God through the Word of God or the, the Word of God through the Spirit of God, excuse me. And He will illuminate to us the path that we should take and when we come to pitfalls, we will see the pitfall because we're seeing it through the eyes of the Word of God. God is giving us discernment. The Spirit of God is working through us. He is speaking to us. He is enabling us to make the decisions that we need to make. And here's the thing. Saul was completely in the dark here. Not only did he have no understanding of the battle to come, not only would God not speak to him, but he had walked so far away from God and His Word, so far into darkness, that he literally convinced himself that if he sinned more against God by consulting a familiar spirit, he could somehow work it out to his spiritual benefit. And we say, that's crazy. Why would Saul think that? But you know what? If the lamp is right here, and I'm here, I might get a little bit of light. I ought to be holding on to the lamp. I ought to be holding on to the lamp. But if I set that lamp down and I'm here, I, I might be living within the, a little bit of that light. But Saul had walked all the way over to here. And he was in such darkness that even the things that, that he knew were wrong weren't wrong to him anymore. Everything had been turned on his head. Right had been made wrong. Wrong had been made right. He had no spiritual compass because he had walked too far away from the Word of God. And this is what we see in the world in which we live in as well that the farther a person has walked from the Word of God, it doesn't matter how much they know the Word of God in their heads. If they have set down that lamp and they have stepped away from it, and so they're quenching and denying the Spirit of God and they're not considering their life within the, the scope of, of the Word and the, and the Spirit of God, 
then they're going to, their spiritual compass is going to be so messed up that they won't know. They, they won't understand the, the wickedness they're getting into. They, they, they will be lost in the darkness of their own poor choices and in their rejection of the truth of God's Word. This is how the rejection of God's Word works. It brings darkness to your understanding of the world around you. And this darkness is not obvious to the person that's in it. It's not. He thinks he's doing fine when he's walking in darkness. It isn't that he's walking around believing he's making the wrong choices. Maybe he knows. Believing that he doesn't know which way he should go, he's blinded by a rejection of God's Word and thus he's walking in darkness. This darkness spans beyond those who reject all of God's Word and can easily touch us as well. If we reject God's Word, we will also find ourselves in darkness. Perhaps you as a believer one day awoke to truths of God's Word which you had previously ignored or rejected. And it was like a light bulb turned on when you finally accepted that area of God's Word and all of a sudden everything was made clear and it completely changed the way you looked at that aspect of the world. Maybe it's politics. Maybe it's morality. Maybe it's relationships. Maybe it's um, amusements. All of a sudden, you finally received an element of the Word of God. You were taught it or you finally submitted yourself to it. And all of a sudden, your thought changed. And now you look at other believers or people that are walking outside the truth and you say, how can they not see? How can they not see the danger they're in? Well, of course they can't see it. They're walking in darkness. That is why we need to shine the light. So it is that where Saul had rejected the way of the Lord by rejecting the Word of the Lord, he found himself in a place where he was seeking impossibly to circumvent God in order to find God. Third and final point. First, God will only be found His way, His Word through His Spirit. Second, the absence of God's way brings darkness. Third, God is not mocked. God is not mocked. Pastor, what do you mean by that? Well, this is the culmination of the last two points. And it will also form the meat of our exhortation this morning. Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 through 9. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap, if we faint not. Saul sought to manipulate his way out of his own mess. The New Testament Saul of Tarsus, Paul, would often uh, be called Paul in, in the epistles, would write to the Galatian believers that God's way and God's system can't be thwarted. You can't get around the way God has designed things to work. Whether that's the spirit realm, whether that's morality, whether that's obedience, whether that's marriage and the roles in marriage as we talked about in Sunday school this morning, God's way is the way and any time you circum- seek to circumvent God's way, there will be consequences. God will not be mocked. And that is why we as a church must be weary, not be weary in well-doing. In due season, we will reap if we faint not. It's God's way or it's our way. And we, while we have the ability to choose the way that we go, as I've said many times recently, we do not have the ability to choose the consequences for our actions. If we cut corners in God's way, the product produ- produced will be the production of cut corners. 
If we reject the light of God, the product produced will be the result of operating with an inefficient light. If we walk in the light of God's word and walk by the direction of the Spirit of God, then in sowing to the Spirit, we will reap life. And this is how the Scripture portrays it. You have death and you have life. And we're not talking about eternal salvation here at this point. That's, that's that, that one decision that you make when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and you reap life or death in that regard. Romans tells us the wages of sin is death. But we understand that the wages of sin being death is not just for unbelievers. As a believer sins, he works in himself death. He invites some spiritual death to reign in his heart and life. Not unto hell, right? That's a different ballgame. We're talking about salvation being by grace alone, through faith alone, and the finished work of Jesus Christ, a one-time eternal transaction. And then you have how life bears out. The, the spiritual blessings, the spiritual cursings, the, the uh, consequences for our actions. And Paul tells us, don't be deceived here. God will not be mocked. What you sow is what you'll reap. If you plant into your life sin, if you plant into your life wickedness, if you plant into your life influence of the demonic realm, to whatever degree you plant it, that's the degree to which it's going to grow. And it is going to grow. It will come out. If you will plant into your life righteousness unto holiness, then you can rest assured that that will grow. It's the system that God has created. And you can't get around it. Well, but nobody saw me do that. It doesn't matter. God did. Well, but everybody does it anyway. It doesn't matter if everybody does it. Everybody does a lot of things. Truth. The line of truth. We must stay on the line of truth. And when we deviate from that line, there are always consequences. Saul sought to deviate from the line in order to manipulate God. And God says, I'm not going to be mocked by you, Saul. You will reap the consequences of your own decisions. And he did. And he will die for it. And God will not be mocked. God's will has found his way. The absence of God's way puts us into darkness. And as we persist in that darkness, we may think that we're getting away with things, but know as surely as you know anything else in this life that you will not. Because God will not be mocked. Choices have consequences. And this is how God has established the world. In your marriage, God will not be mocked. In your family, God will not be mocked. In society, God will not be mocked. In politics, God will not be mocked. In our church, God will not be mocked. The fruit of this church, of your family, of our society, is simply that which we've planted into the ground. Saul doesn't have many more negative lessons left in him. Soon he will die. But as we consider this final lesson from Saul today, might have one more in us. As we consider this lesson from Saul today, believers, we need to grab a hold of this. We need to grab a hold of how God works through His Word, through His Spirit, how the spirit realm works how we interact with it, how you interact with it, and understand this sowing and reaping principle that what we sow is what we reap. And if we can grab a hold of this, it will change the way we live. And it will change not just what we do, but it will affect what we don't do. Let's close in prayer.